So Romans chapter 12. Okay, we left off in the handout uh, at verse 9. So verse 9. So we've covered a little bit of ground here. And since you guys know how it goes, um, we'll go ahead and just move through this pretty quick. And we'll be out of here by like 645. Um, so we covered all the lists or all the gifts in the list of gifts there. Uh, one of the things we want to make sure we explain again is this is not an exhaustive list. Okay, in the verses there where the gifts are listed. This is not exhaustive. When you compare this list to the other passages that deal with um, the gifts, you're going to find more information, more kind of explained there. Um, I just want to go back here real quick. Do, 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 do. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 12 uh, is another portion that has the gifts listed. And Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, you're going to find the idea of gifts being used there. The key when we talk about gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, is our role in the body of Christ is to use our spiritual gifts to the building up of the body and the perfecting or maturing of other believers. This is why uh, Paul spent so much time in 1 Corinthians kind of combating this idea that was in the Corinthian church that what was the gift that they sought after more than any other? Speaking in tongues, right. And Paul corrects that and he basically uses illustrations about the body, okay? And he says, hey, just like the human body has all these members, okay, we've got fingers, eyes, ears, right? Different parts, but all make up one body. So the body of Christ, okay, the believers in the body of Christ, we've been gifted spiritual gifts. These things come to us when we receive Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and we've now been given this gift. Your gift is different than someone else, but that's okay, because when all the gifts come together and work together, we see the body of Christ fruitful and healthy, okay? If you have a part of your body that's no longer functioning the way it should, you don't look at that as normal, okay? If your hand just stopped moving and working, you would go see a doctor. Something's wrong. In the same way in the body of Christ, when an individual says, man, the gift of tongues in the Corinthian church, and again, I think I said this last week, we as a church, we believe there were certain gifts that were given for a certain period of time, uh, the idea of tongues, okay, the speaking a known language somewhere in the world, then that language being interpreted, okay, and communicated to the body of Christ for the purpose of edifying. We believe that was for a time. We believe the gift of prophecy in the sense of brand new revelation, meaning never before revealed, given to a man, a human being, and then that person verbalized that to people for the very first time. We believe those gifts, okay, uh, we would even say the gift of healing, meaning the healing we see in the New Testament, okay? We can lay hands and pray over somebody today and God can heal. But we believe the difference is God is healing that person, not the person. In the New Testament, you see Peter and them just get up and walk. And Peter healed them. They got up, now God did it, but Peter is the catalyst of the healing, okay? We believe those things were for a time, for the formation of the church. Once the word of God is complete, we believe some of those gifts were no longer needed, but in the Corinthian church, we see the gift of tongues being exercised. What was the problem? It was being exercised incorrectly, okay? There's a few problems in the Corinthian church. People, mass groups of people were speaking in tongues. What does Paul call that? Confusion. He says, someone's going to walk in and think you're nuts or mad. So he says, no, one at a time. Then that person will speak, give an interpretation, you're done. If I'm speaking in a tongue and somebody stands up and starts speaking in tongue, what am I supposed to do? I sit down. Why? Because it's going to be confusion. But why was tongues, why do you think tongues was such a gift that people wanted to have? Why do you think in the Corinthian church everybody wanted the gift of tongues? 
to be able to stand and speak this, this language and have it interpreted and glorify God that way. Okay? Yeah. Let's think about the gift of hospitality. Okay? The gift of hospitality, and we talked about it in your list here, uh, this idea of hospitality or serving one another, ministry, right? Giving that, give, ministry, that's not necessarily way out in front, is it? If I'm hospitable to somebody and I'm caring for somebody's needs, that person knows, but does the vast majority of the church most likely know what I'm doing? Probably not. But man, when I'm at church service, I stand up and I speak in the tongue. Oh, everybody notices me. So that's why in the Corinthian church, people wanted that gift. Oh, I want that gift. I wish I had that gift. And what happens is they were wanting this gift and denying their gift. So the body of Christ wasn't healthy and functioning and being fruitful. So Paul has to kind of combat that and say, no, listen, you be content with the gift the Spirit of God has given you. Don't worry about someone else's gift. You're not the one to judge that anyway. And so when we see this list of gifts in Romans, uh, the gifts are prophecy. And again, we talk about the fact that this word implies here the act of directly speaking the word of God. Uh, this would be used of those who wrote Scripture. So the Apostle Paul received direct prophecy, revelation, and wrote it down. Some people use prophecy today to talk about proclaiming revealed truth, to teach and to proclaim God's word. However they want to use that word, if they're meaning brand new revelation from God never before revealed, I don't believe that happens today. I believe when this word of God was complete, the Bible was, was done. The, the canon was sealed. And we talked a lot about this on Wednesday night before, about the confusion that comes into play when anybody can just go, God gave me this revelation. And then they base it totally in experience, right? They speak a new word, and you can't say anything against it because God told me this. This is where things like the Book of Mormon come into play. No, no, God gave me this revelation. Now, those kind of revelations we can dismiss pretty easy because we see it doesn't match up with the Word of God. Often the most dangerous revelations, revelations meaning new revelations somebody says they received, is when it's really, really close to Scripture. And it sounds pretty good. But nowadays we have all kinds of nonsense going on in the body of Christ. We have people making prophecies of things left, right, and center. None of it comes true. But after years and years, one thing happens to fall. It just happens to be true enough or close enough to truth. They go, oh, look, he was right. Never mind all the false prophecies over here. So again, we see this happening today. So that's why we would say, general rule of thumb, when God gives us information, communicates to us, and I know what we mean when we say God speaks to me. We mean, I'm in the Word of God. The Spirit of God begins to move, opens my mind to something in the Word of God. That's not brand new revelation, though, right? It's new to me, but if it starts in the book, it's been in the book, okay? So it has to be that way of understanding that. Otherwise, what we start down this slippery slope of what's the standard? Who gets to be the standard of what's truth? I can just say, well, God told me. Well, God revealed that to me. You don't understand. God spoke to me. And now we can't question it because, well, God spoke to them. And so that's what's happening in the churches. Not all churches, but in some churches. And that's why we believe it's a dangerous thing to understand. But when you look at these lists here, prophecy, ministry, teaching. Again, teaching revolves completely around the Word of God in this context. However, I do believe God gives people the ability to teach in general. We know many of you have had teachers in school or college that were able to communicate truth to you that just seemed to stick. Um, you could argue maybe that's God kind of showing them they have the teaching ability for teaching the Word. However, this specifically revolves to the Word of God. 
exhortation. You ever know somebody that just seems to be always encouraging? Like they always want to encourage you? That would be this gift. Giving. Uh, this seems to refer to one that has financial wealth and gives in a way that is effortless. Okay, this means they give and they give and they give, and they don't care that it's costing them money. They could care less. Uh, we studied on Wednesday night, and I'm totally forgetting her name. That's horrible, but it just popped in my head. Uh, we were talking about the ministry of uh, Charles, uh, John and Charles Wesley and their ministry of evangelism, and they would go around and preach and lead music and all this. They traveled all over America, England, and they saw thousands come to Christ. But in our study on Wednesday nights, we learned about a woman who actually supported their ministry financially. And I forget her name now. I can't remember her name. But anyway, um, she's actually been remembered for this. Extremely wealthy woman, born into money, made money herself, and she invested so much of her money, her personal wealth, into the ministry of the Wesley so they could go and travel around and see people come to know Christ. This woman would have had, in my opinion, this kind of a gift. Uh, ruling. This applies to those that have authority in the church. Of course, they rule or lead under the great shepherd. Okay? And mercy. This gift seems to have a wide application, but maybe dealing with relation to the poor or sick. Someone just compassionate to those that are poor or sick, that are downtrodden. Uh, it was the church that started hospitals and began to display a love and care for the sick and the poor. So all these gifts, Paul's saying as an example of the variety in the body of Christ. And so he's saying these things are good and they're to be used to glorify God and to build the church. Through the application of spiritual gifts, we see a balance in the church where needs are met. So in that same thread, in that same idea, let's look at verses 9 through 16. So uh, 9 through 16. I'm going to have Pastor Greg read those for us since he read them last week. He's really familiar with them. So verses 9 through 16. Okay, so you guys remember the first week we talked about this, we said that there are some scholars and some that have said that Romans 12 really doesn't have a flow. There's really not a system to it. It's just kind of these random, short, kind of proverb-type statements, kind of little encouragements and little exhortations. This is the section that would seem to suggest why. Uh, you see this here, but really, in the context, right, we talked about being a living sacrifice. We talked about the gifts given to the body of Christ. So in the context, where am I doing all of this? Or at least, where is it starting? It'd be starting where? In the church, right? So all these things are happening in the church. All these things are taking place in the body of Christ, and it goes out from there. And if you think about it, how many of you would like to go to a church like this? Where you're kindly affectionate one to another, you love one another, you're blessing one another, you're giving to those in need, you're giving to hospitality, you're rejoicing in hope. When you're sorrowful, you come to church and someone sits and weeps with you. When you're rejoicing, someone sits and praises God with you. How many of you like to go to church like that? What's that? Already here. Yeah, I like that. Okay, we're not, we're not Romans 12 level yet, okay? I pray we're getting there, but we're not there yet. But that's the point. Man, all of us would go, I would go to that church. I'd be a part of that church. I would serve in that church. And the crazy thing is, we are the ones under the grace and leadership of God and His Holy Spirit. We are the ones that God asks to be that kind of church. 
to be that kind of church. So Warren Worsby said this, and I love this, in this section of Scripture. He says this, Love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. Love is the circulatory system for the body of Christ. I thought that was a really cool quote, that love is what kind of carries the lifeblood of the body of Christ. Everything revolves around love. Paul reminds the church, as he does so famously in 1 Corinthians 13, that no matter the gift, without love, it is useless. 1 Corinthians 13, you can jot that down, it's called the love chapter. It does a lot with what is love and what is love not like. And so we must love each other in genuine ways. We must love each other in genuine ways. Fellowship in the church is more than a handshake. It's connecting with each other and listening, praying, serving, and being there. Obviously, one believer in the church cannot do that for the rest of the church. When we work together, we can see hearts lifted with the love of Christ. Can you minister to every person in this church individually? Guess what? That means your pastor can't, right? I can't minister to every person in the church, okay? But what happens in most churches, and they say, and I, I haven't read this, the numbers in a while, but years ago they used to say, I think it was the mid-2000s, 2010, they said the average church in America was like 80 to 90 people, something like that, like evangelical church. And they said that's because usually a pastor or a pastor and maybe a couple staff members can serve and minister to about that many people. And so it's amazing how when the church comes together, and I remember this years ago, Tom, uh, Pastor Tom Blount, he said this one Sunday morning, and it was pretty crazy because I think there was like, I don't know, 275 people in the room, something like that. And he said, uh, he said how many of you would think your needs could be met and you would be fulfilled in Christ if you had 274 other believers ministering to you? Well, of course, everybody was like, well, yeah, of course that would work. He said, exactly. That's the whole point of the church. We're all supposed to come together to serve one another. It's not one person or two people or five people trying to minister to everybody. It's me saying, okay, Lord, how have you equipped me to minister to one person today? Just, just one person. How can I encourage one person in the things of God today? How can I serve the church in some way? And serving the church is teaching classes. It is ministering. We have people that come up every single week and don't get paid a cent and clean the church vacuum and clean the bathrooms and everything else. They don't do it because they love cleaning bathrooms. They're not like, man, I can't wait to plunge that toilet. That's just exciting, okay? This is my clean the toilet dance. That's what I do. Nobody does that. Why, why does somebody give hours of their time to clean this building? Because they want to serve you, the body of Christ. They want you to walk into a building that is maintained and clean and ready to be used. And so when you understand this, love is key, we have to love one another. Paul also reminds the church that the works they are doing are for the Lord and not for man. When I do these things for the Lord, it's not for man. We're benefited by it. But think about it this way. If my only motivation to serve you was what you got out of it or how you repaid me, I'd be pretty discouraged, wouldn't I? If I only did what I did so that you would notice and give me credit or applaud me or pat me on the back, I'd quit. By the way, there are many times in ministry, and Sandra and I can talk about this, Pastor Keith and Renee have talked about this. Anyone who's been in ministry for any amount of time, I'm sure Julie has experienced this in all the years of her teaching. Rick and Chris have been in ministry and church for a long time. When you're in ministry for a long time and you don't get those thank yous, it all of a sudden becomes aware, why am I doing this? Because if you feel yourself start to get kind of discouraged and depressed and doubt and, oh, Lord, there's no point, you weren't doing it for the Lord, odds are. 
But man, when I'm doing it for him and nobody notices, it's not like I'm okay with that. Everybody loves a attaboy. Everybody loves a, hey, thank you for doing that. There's nothing wrong with thanking one another. But when I'm doing it for the Lord, I don't seem to need that. But man, I'm telling you, my own personal experience, when I'm feeling like, oh man, why am I, why am I doing this? Why am I getting up? Why am I doing it? This, preaching this message, teaching this Bible study. Nobody seems to care. That's usually an indicator that I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. I'm doing it for the people, not the Lord. But when I'm doing it at its core for the Lord and his glory, then I'll understand what it means to really love one another. Because ultimately, what drives my love for the church? Yeah, and even primarily, where does it start before that? His love for me. I only love him. Why? First John. I love him because he first loved me. So that's the love that I communicate to others. Uh, this is important because man may not see also the fruits of your ministry or actions. Again, the people that come in clean, I see them. Pastor Greg sees them. Kelsey sees them. It's primarily the ones that are up here, except for the other people who do stuff at the church that day, like the other cleaners or other helpers. But beyond that, you probably wouldn't even know unless you stopped by and saw them. But that's okay because God sees what they're doing. The Lord sees the investment they're putting into the body of Christ. And again, they're not doing it to keep a building clean. They're doing it to minister to the body of Christ, which means ministering to the Lord. God always sees and knows our hearts. If he is pleased, then we are comforted because he is glorified. I'm going to say that again. If he is pleased, then we are comforted because he is glorified. Period. That's, I don't need anything else. You know, it's funny. When I, when I first came on staff here as a senior pastor, about six months in, maybe a year in, not even, I had, we had signs out here. Some of you remember this. It said senior pastor parking, staff parking. Okay, there was like three signs. I still park in the exact same spot I've always parked in. Anyone else can park there at any time, but nobody seems to want to or nobody does. Now, next week, people will park in that spot. I'm not talking about during the week. I'm talking about on Sundays. I'm going to come in like Keith Renega to be like one spot over. Um, it's kind of funny how conditioned beings we are. They park in the same spot they've always parked in. It's just, it's just how it is, okay? I do remember some, there was one time maybe a year ago I pulled in and somebody parked in my spot. It wasn't my spot, but somebody parked there. And I actually was like, what? Nobody parks there. Uh, that's where the sign for senior pastor parking was. I felt personally, I was like, man, if I was a visitor of a church and I pulled into the church and I saw senior pastor parking, I'd be like, wow, this guy thinks he's all that. I, I mean, this is my personal, I'm not against it, nothing biblically wrong with it. I just think that's a little arrogant to me, okay? That's not what it was intended to be, but I'm just saying. So I said, guys, pull that out. We don't need those signs. I can park anywhere. I don't need special parking. Well, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Seth McDonald was up here, and he stopped by to pick up something. And we were talking, and he, first thing he said, he said, where's your, where's your pastor parking sign? And I was like, oh, we don't have one. And he was like, What? He's like, I have one. I'm parking in my spot, you know, and we were joking about that. But to me, guys, I don't care to have a spot. I don't care. Uh, some churches have the pastor's name literally on the sign. I don't care about all that because it doesn't matter if I preach here for 30 years and somebody comes in 10 years later and goes, what's that guy's name that was here before? I could care less because it doesn't matter if I'm doing it for the glory of God, then God is glorified so I'm comforted. By the way, we need, if you go into your daily life that way, you'll find yourself in your business life or your corporate life or whatever you're doing, you'll find yourself succeeding, just so you know. I know in our corporate world, what, does it tell, what do they tell us? Step on anybody, crush anybody, just get ahead, just get ahead, just get ahead. The Bible says, no, no, be humble, be a servant leader. And you will find as you're doing that over time with consistency, 
all of a sudden people will notice that. And if they don't, that's okay, because God is glorified. And so in this passage of these few verses here, there are some really powerful encouragements here. Um, Some things you can see that maybe go outside of even the church. Verse 11, not slothful in business. What's that mean? Slothful. It's pretty simple, right? What do you think of a sloth? Slow, right? I won't tell a joke from a movie that I saw, a cartoon movie with a sloth in it. It's pretty funny. But um, anyway, so when you see that there, okay, it's, it's, it's saying what? I love this section right here because what did we talk about in the first week? Verses 1 and 2, right? Look at 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2 again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable in God, which is a reason of service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What I love is Paul starts off with that challenge. That's what it is, right? Here's the challenge. Be a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world. We talked about what does that not look like. We said, what do churches make that say? It's about music or dress or all this other nonsense. It's not. What is Paul saying when he says, be not conformed to the world? He says, in your mind, be renewed. So you're thinking and dwelling on the things of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. But this whole section right here, that's the fruits of a living sacrifice. Okay? When I'm putting these things into practice, that's how everyone else knows that I'm a living sacrifice for Christ. That's how I'm showing the very will of God. When he says that, be kindly affectionate one to another, in honor preferring one another. What does it mean to prefer one another? Put someone before yourself. Exactly. That means it may inconvenience me, but it's going to be the best for them, so I can do that. I'm going to put myself in the back seat. There's so much in this passage that is an encouragement to me, but also a challenge. Um, It's convicting, right? Bless them which persecute you. I'll just be real for a second. I don't know that I see a lot of that coming from the church in today's day and age. Man, we're so, as Christians, we're so easily offended. I'm saying in a general sense in our nation, not in our church specifically. that, That we get our feelings hurt about the littlest things. And then rather than bless them that are persecuting us, whether it's little persecution or big, by the way, Paul's speaking about real persecution. Okay, these people are losing their lives for Jesus Christ. Bless them which persecute you. What does it mean to bless someone? What do you think? If if I said, hey, be a blessing to them, what would come to your mind as fruit of that? Okay, serve them. How about pray for them? Okay, someone's persecuting you and you find out they get cancer. Do you go, you know what, God? Yeah, that, they deserve that. Get them. They deserve that. Or do you make some meals and you go over and say, hey, I, I thought I could make you a dinner tonight. You've been on your treatment. I thought it might encourage you. Yeah, Josiah, not the first one. Good try. Okay. Right. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And guys, I'm going to be real practical example. The gentleman across the road here uh, fought us tooth and nail to build this building. Like it delayed everything. Meeting after meeting, silly stuff. We bought the lights in our parking lot the way we bought them from what I was told to, to keep the light focused a certain way because that was one of his complaints. 
Okay, we put the church where we put it because of one of the complaints. I mean, all kinds of things. He was worried about we're going to have too much loud music, and somebody was like, you know, it's a Baptist church, right? Like, calm down. Okay, most you're going to have is like a gospel choir coming in or a gospel quartet. Okay, um, back then anyway. So, but do you know what? A few years go by, and I don't know when this was. I don't even remember who said it, guys. We were at church talking about some things after a service, and somebody said, "Hey, did you hear about?" And they said his name across the road. I heard he's gotten really sick. I heard he's not doing real good with his house. I heard his business took a little bit of a hit. And someone in the group said, well, yeah, good. That's what he gets for standing against God. Guys, I was like, I looked at that person and I thought, that is a bold statement to make as an imperfect, flawed, sinful human being. That's received the grace and mercy of God. Could have been wiped out. Right. That's, That's the natural human instinct. But what is Paul saying? We don't react in the natural Because we're a living sacrifice, wholly committed to him. And that's why the love is becoming evident through all these things. And so let's move on. Got a few more verses here, and then we'll wrap it up. 17 through 21. 17 through 21. Can I get a volunteer to read that? I was going to make Pastor Greg do it again, but I'll let someone else read. 17 through 21. Anyone want to read? Renee. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so the section about gifts and all of that relates primarily to our relationship with other believers. Here he's going to talk about really relationship to our enemies or those that would be enemies of ours because of how they've treated us or how they're speaking against us. And so verses 17 to 21, we see this kind of expression of that. When we decide to walk with and for Christ, we will have enemies in this world. We won't look for them and try to make them living as a living sacrifice in a sinful world will bring opposition. Okay, living for Christ as a living sacrifice in a sinful and fallen world will bring opposition to the things of God. It's just going to happen. You don't have to look for it. Uh, and if you, if you want to look for it, you can see it pretty quickly. Jesus had his enemies while ministering on earth from the religious communities as well as outside of the religious communities. Jesus warned his apostles that if the world hated him, it would hate them as well. Paul himself experienced great persecution while ministering the gospel, okay? He suffered great persecution, being imprisoned, beaten, tormented, all kinds of things he went through for the gospel. When you read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you get down to the end of this great chapter on all these heroes of the faith. You read about those that were wandering, right, in dens and caves that had nowhere to live because in the early church, the, the governments could just seize your land. Like if you were a believer and a Christian, they would just come in and say, we're taking your land now. And you had nowhere to live. I mean, there was great persecution throughout church history. However, I love what one author said in this regard. He said this, Unfortunately, some believers have enemies because they lack love and patience, and not because they are faithful in their witness. There is a difference between sharing in the offense of the cross and being an offensive Christian. When I read that, it kind of hit me hard. We all will suffer 
some level of persecution as followers of Christ, but are we being persecuted for our faith because we're living and identifying in the cross and we're standing for the things of Christ? Or am I just being offensive to be offensive? And that is why I'm experiencing this persecution. This means we simply do not return evil for evil, but we return good for evil. See, there's a difference there, right? If somebody's evil to me or says something evil to me, what have we all learned? What's that saying? If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, right? That's what we were all taught as a kid. If you can't say anything nice, just keep your mouth shut, okay? And I love, I think it was Pastor Greg told me that your dad used to say something more like, instead, try to find something nice to say instead of just keeping your mouth shut. And I thought, now that's, that's the more biblical way to approach it. It's not just going, I could say something evil and mean to you, but I'm not. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. It's saying, no, Lord, how can I return good to what this person just did or said? How, that's an application of the, the verse above. How can I bless this person who just persecuted me, who just came against me? And by the way, what did Jesus say? How should we treat our enemies? Pray for them. Love them. Bless them. And again, it doesn't mean we allow ourselves to be open to further persecution, okay? But in some cases, maybe it, it does mean that. You guys remember the video from a couple weeks ago with the pastor? Uh, I think it was in, was in northern Africa that was ministering in an area where uh, radical Muslims were coming in and, and in six months had killed like five different pastors. And he was like the fifth or sixth pastor to die. And he could have left. He could have he left the village. He could have left the church, but he believed God wanted him there. So he stayed faithful to that church and he lost his life because of it. But you don't read where he fought against the radical Muslims or he tried to persecute them back. He just continued to do what God called him to do. He didn't just not return evil for evil, but he actually returned good for evil, preaching the gospel in the face of persecution. So how? How is that possible? It's the overflow of a consecrated and humble life. It's the, it's the overflow of a living sacrifice. Again, this doesn't mean we don't speak truth in love. Of course, we do speak truth in love. When something is wrong, we can identify that as wrong or sinful. Why was John the Baptist killed? Why was he beheaded? Because he spoke the truth. He called the leadership out and said, hey, your relationship is wrong. I'm not going to get into all the details, but he basically said, you, you're sinning right now. So he had him imprisoned. And then with some alluring moments and some alcohol involved, he was con- talked into beheading John the Baptist for just fun, just for fun. And when you think about that, you think, man, if John would have just not said anything, if he just kept his mouth shut, he'd have been fine. And I don't think John was offensive when he said it. He just spoke truth in love, but he was also willing to pay the price for that. And so if we speak truth in love, we have to realize that not everyone's going to want to hear truth. Yes, that's what I was saying. Someone's not going to want to hear it because it's offensive. But I think there's a lot to be said about how we communicate the truth as well. That's what I was saying before. The cross is offensive in and of itself, but I don't have to be offensive in communicating the cross. I can communicate the cross in truth and love. I think too many times we as Christians, we take the cross and we try to beat people up with it instead of communicating, hey, I needed the cross too. And this is how God rescued me. But absolutely, truth in and of itself can be offensive. And so again, we don't, we don't stop speaking truth and love. Of course we do. But when evil is still done... We do not take revenge, but trust in the sovereignty of God and know he is the only judge. So this requires love and faith. Love and faith. Love for others as Christ loves them, and faith believing God can and will accomplish his will in our lives and in the lives of those who sin against us, 
even when we don't know how. One last kind of admonition here from Paul. Romans 12 and verse 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. This reminds us of Christ's words in Matthew 5, 44 through 48. Uh, and that's easier said than done. Uh, but that's not an excuse, right? We can't use that as an excuse. Well, I, it's easier said than done. Well, yeah, but you can still do it. Because he says, if it's possible, live, peace, live at peace with all men. And it is possible if we dwell in Christ because he is the one doing that work in us. When we live this way, will our enemies take advantage of us? Yes. Will they hate us even more? Possibly. Only God knows, but praise God because only God knows. Paul also refers to Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. The coals of fire refer possibly to the feelings of shame our enemies will experience when we return good for evil. It's saying that, that our enemies, when you're in the face of their persecution, you're loving them and communicating truth to them and praying for them and feeding them or giving them drink, that they actually will feel shame to think, man, how can they do this? I, study church history. Study the stories about people that were martyred for their faith, that, that were burned at the stake for their faith, that were, were, were killed publicly for their faith, and how many times they, in that moment, cry out and say, God, would you forgive them? Preaching the gospel to these people that are murdering them in that moment to say, God will, will forgive you if you cry out to him. God loves you. Man, it takes the Christ in us to do that, to communicate that kind of truth. And throughout church history, we've heard about people who have actually been saved. The persecutors themselves have been saved because the individual dying for their faith preached Christ in their last breath. So in this chapter, we discover that the way I live this Christian life matters. First, a living sacrifice, humble before God, then willing to love others, I'm sorry, other believers, and even my enemies. They may not be converted, but we have experienced the love of God in our hearts and grow in peace. If we love our enemies as Christ did and we preach the gospel, but they don't get saved, that's not our concern. But in that moment, I've grown. I've understood what more what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so God is ultimately glorified. So let's do this, guys. It's a little before seven. We're going to wrap it up there. Does anyone have any closing thoughts, comments, or questions before we're dismissed in a word of prayer? Anything at all that you guys want to share before we go? Questions, comments, or thoughts? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, when you see something on TV that just first humanly speaks and gets you angry, let that be converted over into a prayer. Lord, I don't get why they're doing what they're doing. I don't get what's going on, but I'm going to pray that you would intervene and you'd be glorified in that. Absolutely. Tons of opportunities to pray for those that we don't necessarily agree with. Yeah. So I started praying for her. I mean, she wasn't an enemy, but I guess she was. But um, well, then because of that, the Lord softened my heart, and I was able to communicate to her and talk. And come to find out, she was a pastor's wife. She was um, 
Oh, wow. Could have remained, or yep. 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 Right. Yes. Absolutely. Wow, that's powerful. That's so true, and I think that I love that. That by just praying for someone, it softened your heart, and I love that. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And you know what? I think that's the key right there. I think the more we have conversations like that with people, even those that we don't agree with, um, at the least, we're going to leave respecting that person as another human being. And we can honor them that way, even though we may not agree and we don't have to agree. That's the other thing that when he talks about loving your enemies, it doesn't mean I go, okay, I now agree with everything you're doing and I support everything you're doing. That's not biblical love. It means in spite of those things that I disagree with and think maybe are even sinful, I'm going to love you and point you to Christ and let him change those other things. Absolutely. Great point. Any other thoughts, comments, or questions in regards to what we talked about tonight? No? All right. I mentioned it this morning to somebody. Let you guys know because this is kind of our Sunday night crowd. We've got, like I said, three more chapters in Romans. And my thought right now is that uh, when I was at the Creation Museum, um, Answers in Genesis put out a, a study. It looks like a small group study and a book called One Race, One Blood. And it, it basically is taking a biblical approach to dealing with some of the things we see in our world today with racial differences and all those things. And really just going back to the Word of God and talking about how did God create us and how does God want to unite us in Him. And so how can we look at each other in a biblical way? And so we're going to—my plan is, once we're done with Romans, we're going to do that study on Sunday night. And so uh, be praying for that. I can't even tell you when it's going to be because we're just going to kind of the Lord lead through the rest of Romans. But hopefully here uh, within the next probably couple of months, uh, we look like doing that. Also— uh, we'll announce it more on Sunday too, but again, Sunday night crowd. Um, after talking with uh, Sandra and Renee um, and our Christmas musical that we would normally be starting practices like the middle of September, uh, we have together decided that we're not going to do a Christmas musical this year, um, primarily because just everything going on around us, school is up in the air, all that kind of stuff we don't know. So what we're considering right now is doing a spring musical instead, a spring play. Um, and so I have a favorite that we did years ago, that I'm going to kind of pull for. I'm not even going to say it out loud. I'm just going to see if God leads and is sovereign in this way. Um, but, uh, I mean, I have a little pull. I think I could probably make it happen. But, um, but anyway, so just so you guys know kind of where we're going, um, we want to continue to do that. So I'm, I'm very excited about this study that's coming up after Romans. I think it could be really, really eye-opening for a lot of things. And again, hopefully give us some great encouragement from the Word of God. So, but let's pray. And we'll ask God to to be with us the rest of tonight, the rest of this week. Um, And let me encourage you, let's put put this in practice. Let's go live this this week. Let's go, I guess I'll say it this way, go find an enemy and love on them, okay? Encourage them, bless them, okay? Just find somebody that doesn't like you and just be really nice to them this week, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it reveals to us. Lord, I know when I read things in your word often, I am not only encouraged and challenged, I'm even convicted because I see things in the Word of God that I know are not as evident in my life 
as they need to be. Uh, Lord, I know that uh, we could always apply this to our lives in a truer way than we have. And so I pray for everyone in this room right now that they would take these things that we've talked about tonight and apply them to our lives and go forth and not allow uh, the outlets around us, the different noises around us communicate to us difference, that we would end up allowing our joy to be stolen and we would begin to think differently than we should, but that we would just dwell in the Word of God, that we would realize that this is our foundation for all that we believe, for everything that we believe to be true of you and of our lives. And I pray that we would live that way. Father, help us to look for opportunities this week to make a difference for you. Maybe there's somebody that's going to come into our lives this week that is just at one of the worst parts of their life. And we, by your grace, and only because you're working in us, get to be a blessing to them and encourage them. And so, Father, thank you in advance for the opportunities you're going to give us. Help us to make a disciple of someone this week and to even lead someone to Christ if you would so have it be. So, Lord, Father, go with us this week. Give us opportunities and help us to continue to just rejoice in you. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.